Welcome to Keeping It Israel, brought to you by First Century Foundations. This weekly podcast explores how your Christian faith connects to Israel and why standing with Israel matters. Now here's your host, Executive Director of First Century Foundations, Jeff Feuders. Well, welcome to the podcast today. My name is Jeff, and I'll be your host. And our guest today is Scott Stripling. Scott is the provost and professor of biblical archaeology and church history at Bible Seminary in the Katy, Texas area. He's also the director of excavations for the Associates for Biblical Research at Kirbet Alamakatir, which is biblical AI, and also at Shiloh, Israel. Scott, welcome to the podcast today. Hey, Jeff. Thanks for having me on. Well, it's uh, our privilege, and uh, we love to be able to connect with guests of your caliber. And uh, I have been to Shiloh. We're going to talk about that a little bit today because uh, I absolutely loved that site. But uh, first of all, just tell us a little bit about yourself. Tell us about your journey. And how did you get to where you are? How do you end up becoming a biblical archaeologist? <laughs> Well, I was uh, a Bible reader as a teenager and um, became fascinated with the background of the biblical text. And um, while I went through seminary and was a pastor for, for many years, while I was going through grad school, I did a couple of master's and a couple of doctoral programs. But uh, my fascination and obsession was always with the background of the biblical text. I thought that the things that we struggled to understand probably had to do with a lack of awareness of the then and there. And uh, so when it got time to do doctoral work, I just thought, you know, nothing else really interested me. Uh, how much finer can we split the theological hairs than they're already split? And um, mm. I, I began to get involved about 25 years ago in uh, in Israel and then volunteering on archaeological uh, digs. And then as I you know, completed my my education and then kind of grew up through the ranks of assistant square supervisor and square supervisor and field supervisor and assistant dig director until ultimately um, I was heading up the expedition. Wow, that's fantastic. Love to hear yeah. about that journey. And uh, we, we share some history in that we uh, both have pastoral experience. Uh, you you figured out to get out sooner than I did, but... Uh, <laughs> uh, <laughs> well, it's kind of worked well for me, Jeff, because, you know, I have a large dig team, 150, 200 people. And so there's a lot of pastoring <laughs> that, that still goes on. I bet. I bet. Well, I loved my years in pastoring. I don't want to give anybody the wrong impression, but uh, sometimes God calls us into different areas of ministry. And uh, certainly uh, we have experienced that in the last five years, you over the last uh, 25 or so. And it's uh, it's just it's amazing for me always to hear people's personal stories and and know that, uh, you know, everything that God does in our lives is a is a preparation for the next thing. And I think as Absolutely. you talked about your journey, that uh, that really gets born out in your story. Right. And it's exciting for me because I get to, I mean, right now I'm editing a new dig volume. And um, yesterday I preached three times, uh, twice in Spanish and once in English. So I still get to preach all that I want, but I don't have to deal with any of the problems that the pastors dealt with. <laughs> <laughs> that is good, isn't it? I uh, I preached twice myself yesterday, but I got to drive <laughs> away as well. So, uh, hey, what led you to excavate Shiloh? How, how did you uh, first become involved in that dig? And how long have you been excavating there? 
We have been uh, excavating since 2017 at Shiloh. Our, our research interests lie in the highlands of Israel. And so we've, for over 40 years, been working in the highlands of Israel. So Kerbet Nisia was the first site, then Kerbet El Makathir, and now Shiloh. And so all those sites in the highlands, from, from Hebron in the south to Shechem in the north, are within my research interests because we, we want to have a regional understanding, not just a site-specific understanding. So uh, Shiloh is kind of the jewel of the Nile, if you will, because it was Israel's first first capital. The, the tabernacle rested there for over three centuries. So it was on my radar, and, you know, we'd been studying it, visiting there, and had made a, a number of close friends there in the in the community. And when the Antiquities Authority uh, floated the idea to me about excavating at Shiloh, I was, of course, thrilled. We had, I felt like we were coming to the end yeah. of the Kirby Delmacotter excavation after 21 years. This was the door that opened up, and it was really the quality of the work that we had done at Kirby Delmacotter, even though it was kind of off the beaten path and, you know, wasn't a high visibility thing. It had grown in the last several years of the dig, and um, so when that invitation was floated my way. I kind of did my due diligence and we brought the, the Makathira excavation to closure and then did all the things necessary to open the new expedition at Shiloh. Oh, that's great. Now, the, the Bible mentions Shiloh uh, 32 times, I believe, as a city, and, and once in reference to the Messiah in Genesis 49. Tell our listeners, what does the name mean? And just talk a little bit about Shiloh's significance in the Bible. You've already referred to, you know, the fact that it was the capital, the fact that the tabernacle stood there. But uh, just give us some information on those things. Well, apart from the, the Genesis 49 reference, <clears throat> the first that we hear about Shiloh is Joshua 18.1, and it just simply says that Joshua had the tabernacle erected at Shiloh. And why Shiloh? We're not sure, but it, there's several things that come into play. Number one, it's in the tribal teria, uh, territory of Ephraim, and Joshua was from the tribe of Ephraim. Uh, it's also centrally located and apparently it was part of the Shechem city-state in the late Bronze Age. And that particular city-state did not resist the Israelites. They allied themselves with the Israelites. If you'll remember, after the victory at Ai in Joshua 8, when they went north to renew covenant at Gerizim and Madibal, that it, it says all Israel joined in together, alien and citizen alike. And so the people at mm. Shechem embraced Yahwehism, <clears throat> and it's my view that Shiloh was part of the Shechem city-state. So it was already there. The fortification system was already there when Joshua arrived and had the tabernacle pitched at uh, Shiloh. We don't know. Um, prior to that, all we have is a Marna letter 288 and uh, that I believe is a reference to Shiloh. But outside of that, we don't have Mesopotamian or Egyptian references to the site. Okay. Now, uh, you've been there the last four years. I was able to visit in um, 2019. Uh, actually, one of the last trips we were able to make to Israel, as a matter of fact. And um, I was absolutely blown away by by what we saw there. Um, the site that that I visited, uh, are, are you excavating right on that sort of tabernacle platform site? Uh, is that the site you believe is the platform of the tabernacle? Talk to us a little bit about that. 
We're excavating on the northern slope. So if you can picture the tower on the top, on the summit, right. and then there's the, the platform down below that, you know, some people believe was where the tabernacle rested. We're actually right in between there on the northern slope is where we are excavating. <clears throat> I published an article when the dig was starting on the locate possible locations of the tabernacle. It's uh, accessible on my academia page, but I, I kind of go through the four possibilities. I've never been a, a believer that the northern platform was a good candidate. I think that the reasons that people are, are basing that are, are pretty flimsy. And uh, I go through them in my article. I can touch on them if you would like in just a moment. But um, sure. I thought that the summit made a lot more sense. But now <laughs> our excavations very serendipitously have uncovered um, strong evidence that we are actually in the location of where the tabernacle rested. Okay. Uh, well, please, by all means, uh, tell us some of the reasons why why you think that is. Of course, uh, we can point people to your article. As a matter of fact, if you provide those links for us, we can make sure that uh, they get included in the, the video portion of this. But uh, talk to us a little bit about, about the reasons for your belief that uh, it could be where you're digging or maybe even in another location. Okay. Well, the four possibilities initially were the northern platform, which Wilson identified in 1866, just measured it and said, hey, you know, these measurements are uh, pretty pretty much match what we would expect. It was a stone quarry that was repopularized in the 1980s by Kaufman. And since the modern settlement has, has taken root there, they've kind of embraced that. It's kind of like, hey, here we've got the tabernacle platform and there's some signage right. that points to it. They say there's cup marks in the bedrock that maybe were where the posts of the tabernacle were. <laughs> the problem is, of course, the the people making these assessments are not archaeologists. Everywhere we excavate in the southern Levant, we have cut marks in bedrock. You know, that doesn't mean that the tabernacle was was there. So this is what I mean by it's kind of flimsy. We have a bone deposit that is a massive favisa from the period of the tabernacle that is just east of our field, field H, outside the city wall, which is uphill from that northern platform. Those okay. bones are only bones from the biblical sacrificial system. Two-thirds of them are from the right side of the animal, <laughs> And Leviticus 7 tells us that the right side of the animal is the priest's portion, and it's full of late bronze 2A pottery, which is the period when Joshua erected the tabernacle at Shiloh. So it's illogical wow. to me that they would have carried bones uphill and then dumped them in this particular spot. And uh, so this then initially led me to favor the summit for a number of reasons, the apex of the tell, because then they would have been going slightly downhill and then dumping them there. The southern approach also, that's where the five churches are at Shiloh. And so the early Christians seem to venerate that uh, area. But I really did not expect that we would be in an area that would turn out to be cultic. And so we began to uncover uh, ceramic palm granites and then a demolished four-horned altar and then storage rooms that apparently line the entire perimeter of the site. No other site in Israel has this, by the way, um, full of wow. collard rim jars, which is the way that people tithed. You know, they can go to tabernacle.org and make a secure online donation. <laughs> you know, they had to bring commodity. 
And so right. we're finding this verisimilitude, the bone deposit, the, the, the ceramic pomegranates, which is hung on the priest's garments, if you remember, the, the hem yes. of the priest's garments, there were bells and pomegranates. And, and, and then the, the storage rooms. And then lastly, we have now exposed a building that is perfectly east-west that appears to be the exact dimensions given in the Bible for the, the Mishkan. Um, a platform for the tabernacle, if you will. And mm-hmm. I still need one corner, which I haven't been, I've had to wait two years because of COVID-19, unfortunately, but I'm hoping right. to have a team back in the field in January and to get the final answer to that. But if we have a, a building that's separated two to one ratio, just like the, the tabernacle was, um, oriented east-west that is an identical match to the dimensions with a demolished four-horned altar, with the palm granites, with the storage rooms, and with the bone deposits, then I'm at that point ready to say it appears that we have have sound evidence of the biblical sacrificial system right there in field H1. Wow, that is fascinating. And uh, I, I assume that because this is still an active dig, of course, uh, the public probably can't uh, go and see that just yet. But <laughs> well, uh, they can. I mean, they can walk by. They wouldn't know what they were looking at, you know, because it's right. nothing's marked and you'd have to know what you were seeing. But mm-hmm. if they kind of follow me uh, after this interview and, and follow out in social media, they'll they'll have a good idea. There's some drawings that we've done and schematics and they can also come participate in the dig, by the way. Fantastic. I was just going to ask you that. What what would it take for me to come and, and help in January? I can't, you know, I don't know anything about archaeology, but I can carry stuff. Um, and, you know, <laughs> you're, you're just the person I'm looking for. OK, good. Um, we our volunteers um, are the ones that have the thrill of actually making the discoveries. You know, supervisors are are supervising and doing paperwork and, you know, all the things that they need to do. Uh, right. But no, we take volunteers, we do a field school, we train them, and you'd be surprised how quickly you get the hang of what you're doing. And you're working then with a trained square supervisor. Uh, so digshiloh.org is where all the details are on dates and costs and things like that. Okay. Fantastic. Well, we will uh, make sure that we get that up on screen as well. And if uh, you mentioned social media, if people want to follow you there, uh, just tell us how they can do that. Okay, uh, my website is scottstripling.net. The dig website is digshiloh.org. The school website is thebibleseminary.edu. And then they can find me on Facebook or Google me and, you know, all kinds of things will come up. ABR has our own weekly TV program called Digging for Truth, and it's all archived on YouTube. And so they can also search Digging for Truth and then search my name and they'll they'll find a lot of things there as well. Fantastic. Well, we uh, look forward to looking into that. Even I look forward to looking into that personally. So that will be great. Well, this is amazing. The uh, the discoveries that you have found, your team has unearthed. Uh, I, I think that, um, you know, the one thing you mentioned that really stands out to me as a confirmation of some of the, the Bible's accounts regarding the tabernacle is the bones from the right side of the animal. Yeah. That is fascinating to me that so you're finding bones from the right side, but not so much from the left. 
Yeah, disproportionately. And so it it cannot be an anomaly. There has to be an explanation. It was Finkelstein. I mean, we're not the ones who excavated the bone deposit. The other things that I'm talking about, we did. But there have been two previous expeditions at Shiloh. The Danish, 100 years ago in the 1920s, did four seasons. And then the Israelis in uh, Bar-Ilan University did four seasons uh, in the early 1980s. So there was only about 5% of the site that was excavated. So, you know. We not many questions were answered, but it was uh, Finkelstein in Bar-Ilan in the 1980s that uncovered that bone deposit. He just simply noted that two thirds of the bones were from the right side of the animal because they were studied by a zooarchaeologist at Tel Aviv University. But um, he had no explanation. As a Bible reader, of course, I had the <laughs> the advantage of having read Leviticus many times, and so uh, immediately in my mind, I'm I'm going to Leviticus seven. And then that gives us what I would call, Jeff, a verisimilitude, a consistency between what we read in the, the, the textual account and what we uncover in the material record. Very cool. I mean, like, fascinating to me. Uh, you are, as you mentioned a number of times, a Bible reader, a student of the Bible. You're a former pastor. Um, sometimes, you know, archaeologists... Uh, can can get uh, criticized for uh, you know looking looking to confirm uh, the bible uh, in, in that sense or uh, or maybe jumping too quickly to conclusions i i, I know uh, you know from reading a little bit about you you're uh, you know very well trained archaeologist and and you would never sort of stretch anything that you find but but talk a little bit about uh, the dance of of Walking with, uh, you know, I, I think that um, uh, our uh, we've heard about, you know, archaeologists who who work with a Bible in one hand and a trowel in the other. Talk a little bit about that, uh, about that tension. <laughs> well, that's a good question. Um, I, I used to say I've never actually had the Bible in one hand or a trowel in the other. And so a few years ago, I did a video with a Bible in one hand and a trowel in the other just to torment uh, people, you know. Um, yeah. It's like I I read a verse and then I would dig a little bit and then I would read another verse and (laughs) just kind of having a little (laughs) fun at their their expense. And so they're having a little fun at our expense. Um, There there are certain schools of thought. Um, The minimalist camp tends to treat the Bible as guilty until proven innocent. Um, They do use the Bible when it supports their chronology or their views. But the rest of the time, it's not a reliable source, you know, and you're criticized if you use it. Uh, but right. I want to tell you this, Jeff, I, in, in that part of the world, the, the Southern Levant, Israel, Jordan, primarily, the Bible is our go-to source. I mean, these artifacts, when they come out of the ground, these walls, when they emerge, they're mute. They have to be interpreted. And so, right. uh, you know, a, a trained archaeologist can, you know, read the pottery and, and date it from there. But we have to have a context for that. And the Bible is our go to source. Uh, we we supplement that with literature from Egypt and Mesopotamia and so forth. But without the Bible, we would be totally lost. I mean, how was Shiloh found in the first place? Edward Robinson took the Bible and he read Judges 18 and the description was very specific and it led him to Kerbet Siloon. And everyone agrees that that is biblical Shiloh. I mean, it literally told him where the site was located. So it's it's not a mythology. We're talking about real mm-hmm. people, real places and real events. And my contention is that the Bible should be treated with the same 
level of authenticity that the other ancient sources are treated. And um, that's all we've ever asked for is a level playing field. Let's not discount or discredit this because there happen to be truth claims uh, in it. So as as a believer, uh, am I capable of bifurcating my faith from from my archaeological work in the field? Of course I am. I mean, the the fact that that question is asked is is ludicrous. I mean, can can an atheist separate his unbelief from what he's doing? Well, yes, theoretically, of course he can. So um, we're trying to engage in that the arena of ideas, and it's no secret that I've pushed back a lot against that idea that we cannot use the Bible. In fact, we're lost if we don't use the Bible when we're excavating uh, in Israel and Jordan. Love that. Uh, and I, I love that, you know, the, all we ask for is a level playing field. That's, you know, that that is, uh, I think, extremely reasonable. And, uh, you know, the the illustration used about the atheist, I mean, we know of, of lots of atheists who set out to disprove the existence of God and in so doing ended up proving his existence. Uh, in, well, OK, in their so minds. there you go. That, isn't that scientific yeah. method, though? You have a hypothesis. Right. And then you, you seek to test that hypothesis exactly. and then you adapt or adjust the, you know, your conclusions. So we have certain claims like, again, take Judges 18, that Shiloh was located south of Labona on the Patriarch's Highway, blah, blah, blah. Well, you know, you, it says it and then it's there. So, you know, once we start racking up hundreds of those synchronisms between the archaeological data and the biblical text, and from my perspective, we cannot rationally yeah. then say that this is not a reliable historical document. For sure. Oh, that's amazing. Now, you hinted at this earlier, but but talk to us a little bit about what makes you so passionate about digging up the Bible. Uh, you know, you talked about your journey, but but what is it that makes you so passionate about this? I'm passionate by nature um, and this obsession with the background of the biblical text, the material culture that that underlies the Old and New Testaments, if you will. And then, of course, we have to know the prehistoric archaeology as well. And then the, the post-biblical periods as well. In fact, I'm an expert in ceramics from the the the. Hellenistic, Roman, Byzantine uh, period, so and even early Islamic, you know. So it's not just that we're focused on the the biblical periods because we have to know everything when we're excavating. I mean, we're going through Islamic material and then working our way all the way down to through Canaanite, maybe Calcolithic, even Neolithic or Epipaleolithic uh, material. So you know, I'm interested in everything. Um, it's sort of what it to me what it means to be sentient or self aware of my environment, where I came from, what what I believe, how I'm being impacted by the world around me and how I'm in turn impacting the world around me. Um, but very clearly, the underlying biblical text is what drives my interest in, in mm -hmm. seeing those synchronisms. Um, for example, if, if I may, I'll give you one or two real quickly. Um, at Kerbe del Makatir, we excavated 1,322 coins. That's a lot of coins. Um, that's the third most of any site in Israel. Um, Masada okay. was wow. number one because they all took their money with them when they went there. Um, mm -hmm. And then uh, Kerbe Kayafa and then our site. And the reason is because we metal detected very meticulously and other sites 
don't do that. And so we recovered an enormous amount of coins. Well, of those 1,322, two were gold, five were silver, and 1,315 were bronze. Think about those ratios. That's overwhelming. 1,315 bronze, five silver, and two gold. Well, then you read the New Testament accounts like Peter and John, when they encounter the beggar at the beautiful gate and they tell him silver and gold, we do not have. Well, they weren't kidding. It was was very rare to to have silver and gold when you see those ratios. The woman in Luke 15 who had 10 silver coins and she lost one and there was a crisis. There was a panic. Well, it would not have been a crisis if she'd lost a bronze coin, you see. When you got the ratios, it's because it was silver. It was worth two weeks wages. So it's that sort of illumination. I've never believed that archaeology changes the biblical text. What I've always said is that it illuminates the text for us by setting it in a context so we can understand it the same way that they understood it then and there. Very good. Very good. I love that. Now, the, this area that you are excavating uh, and, and focusing on is, is part of what the world often refers to as uh, the occupied territories. And, um, you know, not to draw you into a, a political debate, but, but the Jewish people who live around the site you are excavating, they're, they're referred to as settlers by some. And I'm wondering if, if some of what you've been uncovering during your excavations has made you see those terms in a different light. Do you feel that they, they actually do have a right to live in and around ancient Shiloh? And perhaps, you know, more importantly, what does the Bible say about the Jewish right to that territory? Well, you're right. We cannot escape politics. I always laugh when my friends here in the U.S. uh, talk about how political things are. I told them I I excavate in the West Bank of Israel, so I've I've got problems that are on a different level than yours. I mean, for many years, Mm -hmm. we had a Palestinian village on one side of us and a Jewish village on the other side of us. Now, at Shiloh, it's just a a Jewish village that's, that's adjacent to our site. So the, the terminology is all loaded. There are connotations, Area C, or is it Judea Samaria, or is it the West Bank, you know, and mm-hmm. depending on who you're talking to, you try to adjust your language accordingly because everybody gets offended depending on the terminology that you're, you know, using. Yeah. Um, it's sort of generic to refer to it as Area C, but... It is the ancient heartland uh, of Judea and Samaria. There have been many, many more excavations done in the Shephelah, in the coastal plain, in the Galilee. Almost none have been done for the last 40 years in Judea, Samaria. So if I were to show you a map with dots on it, you would be shocked. You would just kind of say, oh, wow, you know, there was nothing going on in Judea, Samaria. No, it's because it hasn't been excavated. I mean, besides uh, my organization, ABR, and some salvage projects, they're just because of the political tensions. And quite frankly, most universities uh, are not willing to take the heat. Um, and mm. fortunately, you know, we I mean, we have taken it. I've been sued by taken to the Israeli Supreme Court a couple of times and had to submit briefs of people trying to shut down our our excavations. And fortunately, this Israeli Supreme Court ruled in our favor. Um, I'm really not political there. I mean, I'm I'm a lover of mankind. I want people to to know God and uh, know Him the way that I do. And I'm trying to be a light and a blessing to 
Jews and to Palestinians and to anyone else that, that I encounter. So as much as I can, I try to stay out of the, the political fray. I, I cannot come into agreement with the deniers that there was not a Jewish history and so forth, because every day we excavate evidence that there was, you know, mm-hmm. now, what are the modern political implications of that? I, you know, I try to leave that to other people, but I just have to tell the truth about what we're excavating. And, you know, at this yeah. point, it's the sacrificial system that's referred to throughout the Hebrew Bible. Yeah. And I would, I would uh, also sort of postulate that, that God uh, does give those territories to the, the Jewish people, to Israel uh, in Old Testament scripture. And, and uh, in my view, at least, you know, that, that, uh, that gives them the right to uh, to live there, but uh, of course the the political machinations uh, of our culture today um, uh, show a different picture, and and so that's I guess always the tension. And uh, we've had some conversations with Jewish people who live in Judea and Samaria, and um, why th- it is so important to them. You know that that they make the effort to do that and to uh, to eke out a life there and and all of those kinds of things. But uh, anyhow, I I didn't want to sort of pin you on the political piece. Just uh, uh, just you know just here you know from the archaeological perspective. Yeah, we we are finding historical evidence of uh, the Jews from thousands of years ago. Yeah, I mean, we have uh, our New Testament stratum, which we would call early Roman, late Hellenistic, which is late Second Temple period, uh, at two sites, Kermit Makater and at Shiloh. So we're heavily occupied at that time. And that means we have stone vessels, which are unique to, to the ritual purity culture of the first century. We have mikvahot, so at, at both sites. So they're practicing daily ritual immersion in water. We have all the coins, all the Hasmonean coins, every ruler mentioned in the New Testament. You know, we have those, the coins of those rulers. Uh, so it's very clear. And there's an absence of pig bones um, in these particular right. uh, strata. So there's many reasons. You know, I just don't think a rational person could argue against these being um, Jewish sites during that time. As we go further back into the Old Testament period, we find the same thing. We find synchronisms that clarify that once we get outside the Jewish period, then, for example, even in the Christian occupation, say um, the Byzantine period, the percentage of pig bones shoots way up. And in the Canaanite Mm. period, in the pre-Israelite period, it shoots way up. So, you know, we analyze everything, the seeds, the bones, you know, we're, we're trying to understand what life was like in antiquity. And do we have evidence of cultural shifts, destruction layers, dietary changes, changes in pottery and things like this? Well, Scott, that is extremely uh, helpful. And I think that uh, anybody watching, listening uh, can can draw some uh, conclusion from that without uh, us saying too much more. But um Maybe one last question. The the other site that you uh, were at for so many years, Biblical Eye, there are some theories out there that that say that it it does not match the biblical account. Have you made discoveries at Eye that that do in your in your mind support the biblical account? Oh sure. Um, and again, there's an article on my academia page called "The Problem of Eye Solved After 40 Years," so uh, people can okay. easily uh, access that. 
uh, but I'll just hit a few of the highlights for you. Um, the Bible says that the gate of I was on the north side of the site. When we uncovered the gate complex, it was on the north side of the site. So had it been on the south or the east or the west, it would not have been I because the Bible says it was on the north. Okay. The, the Bible says that it was destroyed um, as the second side of the conquest. So we have a destruction layer. We have a, a pottery, a terminal pottery that, that dates to what we would call LB1B, late bronze 1B pottery that's present there. The Bible says that, that it was a fortress and we have uncovered the evidence of the fortress. We have women who were at I, the Bible says, which some have argued, why would you have that at a military fortress? Yet we have neonate, neonatal burials um, uh, at the site that we uncovered as well. And then the topography, you know, uh, Joshua 8, 7 and 8 are very specific about a shallow valley to the north and a deep valley to the west. And we have both of those. So, you know, we sort of inductively take the geography, the topography, the archaeology. We do not have an inscription, Jeff. So I could never say that I'm positive, that I know that, it, you know, it has to be. Okay. All I can say as an archaeologist is that from my perspective, the preponderance of evidence uh, points yeah. to Kirby Makathir as being I of Joshua 7 and 8. Wow. Well, that's great. I uh, I love hearing about those kind of things. And, and actually, you know, the listing of, of the evidence stacking up for someone who, you know, is a, is a student of the Bible, but has never sort of been and seen a site like that uh, is always is always just incredible to me. And, you know, we love we love traveling Israel. We love seeing new places, new sites, understanding uh, that, you know, we're 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 on these locations where, uh, you know, Holy Scripture was written about and and where those events happened. And I, I just think it's uh, amazing to be able to talk to someone like you today and uh, mm. sort of get that just confirmed again. And uh, so thankful that you took the opportunity and the time to uh, to be with us today. Thanks so much for being on the podcast. Well, it was my thrill to be with you. And I, I'll just say as I close that Kermit on Makater was a very difficult, challenging dig. It was off the beaten path. We had no water. We had no restrooms. I mean, it was pretty hardcore. Oh. Shiloh is much easier dig. So uh, if folks go to digshiloh.org, they're going to come to the greatest experience that they could ever have. Well, I'm definitely going to check it out. And if you're watching, I would encourage you to do the same. And uh, Scott, it's just been a, a pleasure to make your acquaintance and to uh, to talk with you today. I hope that we get the opportunity to do it again. Well, thanks, Jeff. I appreciate it. And blessings to uh, your listeners. Israel, that meaningful name is mentioned more than 2,300 times in the Bible. It is from this land, nation, and people that Christianity emerged some 2,000 years ago. But since that time, Christianity has become mostly disconnected from Israel, and without an understanding of the Jewishness of Jesus and our Hebraic foundations, so much of the depth and meaning of the Bible is lost. First Century Foundations is committed to helping Christians reconnect and stay connected to Israel. We invite you to subscribe to our YouTube channel where you can view our TV programs and weekly video podcasts, Keeping It Israel. Follow us on Facebook and our other social media platforms. Let's reconnect to Israel and stay connected. Find out more at firstcenturyfoundations.com.